there will be an increasing number of people that can exist on the Earth without significant environmental impact. It's very hard to come to the conclusion that the population could possibly rise faster than the carrying capacity of the planet. Hey, humans! Welcome to Demystifying Science, the only show that looks at humans from the outside. Hit that subscribe button right now so we can bring you better and better conversations with top shelf earth thinkers. Like the one we have for you today with the anti-aging scientist, Dr. Aubrey de Grey. Our conversations span the importance of non-academic institutions in science, strategies for combating aging, and an exploration of how extending human lifespan will change the earth forever. In Dr. DeGray's perspective, age-related decline is a medical problem that is like any other one. It can be treated and cured by cutting-edge technology. He's devoted himself to this pursuit as a founder of the SENS Research Foundation, the Methuselah Foundation, and the medical startup Ajax. Through these groups, he advances the development of regenerative medicine and educates regular people about the very real possibility of an Earth without aging. They support projects centered on whole organ regeneration and lifespan extension. These include things like 3D printing for biomedical applications, genome sequencing of long-living animals, and cash prizes for experimental work that extends the lifespan of already aged creatures. Through identifying, diagnosing, and treating the cellular damage that's the hallmark of aging, he believes it's possible to achieve this goal of indefinite lifespan. Though the technology is still on the horizon, he's confident that humans are within reach of this new era. So enjoy the conversation, humans. And as always, like and subscribe and share with your friends. That way, we can see you again next week. Yeah. See you soon. Hello. You run your own institute there on Earth, huh? I don't exactly run it, but it was created around my work. I'm the chief scientist. That's pretty unique. Well, it's rare, I guess. But it was the easiest way and the most effective way to get stuff done. It, but that's usually something that governments do on Earth, <laughs> right? Well, kind of. So, of course, the question is the scale. So... The foundation that you're talking about, Sense Research Foundation, is quite small. We only have a budget of something like $5 million per year. And uh, at that kind of scale, it's not too hard to do what, I'm, what we're doing, um, just so long as you have an inspiring mission. So, of course, our mission is to bring aging under comprehensive medical control, and we have been able to attract funding from a sufficient number of people who are just giving us money, um, you know, a donation. So do you um, hope to use those small funds to inspire researchers inside of other institutions? Absolutely. And not just other institutions, but also the private sector. So that's exactly what's been happening. So we've been doing this for something like 15 years. And early on, it was very slow indeed, because first of all, we didn't have much money. And secondly, um, the work was at a very early stage, and so there wasn't a great deal of belief that it was going to succeed. But as time's gone on, we've made step-by-step -step progress that has changed. And in particular, over the past three or four years, it's been possible for us to spin out quite a lot of uh, projects as startup companies that can be um, not simply a philanthropic venture, but rather are obviously investable. Um, and a number of people have come in and written much bigger checks for those projects than what they were willing to do when it was purely philanthropic. Now that you've proven that things are moving in the right direction, what are the, uh, what are the startups look like? Well, uh, they all look very different from each other, actually. I mean, of course, each startup works on an individual component of the problem, an individual type of damage that accumulates in the body and that we need to eliminate. And some of those types of damage are easier to eliminate than others. So some of the companies are further along than others. I should emphasize that it's not just these companies that have been spun out from the foundation that I'm talking about here. There's also dozens and dozens of companies that have sprung up 
independently of us, but with very similar, uh, closely aligned ways of looking at the problem of aging. And so, yeah, this, it's a big ecosystem now. And yeah, every kind of company exists. Some of them have gone public. Some of them have, um, you know, uh, are in the process of being acquired. Some of them are already in clinical trials. Some of them are maybe a few years away from clinical trials. So you've got all flavors. So let's, can we back up just a minute? You did your PhD and at some point you decided that the best way forward was not through a traditional academic route. Is that correct? What was um, that? What was that uh, decision yeah. like? Well, actually, it was a little more than that. So even when I got my PhD, that was kind of a bonus. I wasn't really working towards a PhD. Huh. Uh, when I started working in the biology of aging, I realized that a lot was missing in the community. Uh, one thing that was missing was that everybody was working within, within mainstream academia, and that causes a bunch of problems, a bunch of um, difficulties with working on the most important areas. Essentially, essentially, it comes down to money, that um, there's always a shortage of academic funding, and so people have to maximize their chances of having their grant applications accepted, and that revolves around things like, for example, only applying for money to do stuff that's relatively easy so that you can get published nice and quickly and um, you know uh, have a track record to get your next grant application funded. Similarly, it also... Um, so it sort uh, of promotes incremental adjustments? That's right. And that's right. And what's worse than that is that it also promotes balkanization, you know, siloing of um, research because... People, uh, the easiest way to get funded is to apply for money to do stuff that you're already known to be good at, mm. as opposed to doing stuff that might be on the periphery of your area of expertise. And so cross-disciplinary work also is extremely biased against from that thing. So, so that was one thing I wanted to try and get away from. But another thing which also um, became apparent very early on was that there were far too few people in biology who actually spent their time pacing up and down and talking to themselves and having ideas. Hmm. Everybody was focused on the experimental work. I had a lot of friends back then who were physicists. And of course, in physics, you've got this very healthy um, symbiosis between people who call themselves theoreticians and people who do the experiment. And it works really well. In biology, you basically don't have that. Hardly anybody, you know, the term theoretical biologist is almost derogatory. So, um, so I felt we needed more people who were essentially providing the glue, bringing ideas together from disparate areas and seeing what could be done with them. And that was how I was able to make a difference. So how did you make that transition? Did you? So I got lucky. I got lucky. Um, I originally started out uh, in my career as a computer scientist. So my undergraduate degree is not in biology, actually. It's in computer science. Mm -hmm. I was working for several years as an artificial intelligence researcher, and that was going pretty well. But during that time, I met and married a biologist and started to learn a bunch of biology and also to learn everything I told you already about the nature and the shortcomings of the, bio the biomedical research community. Um, and uh, I, during that time, I took a job that was very undemanding, a bioinformatics job at the University of Cambridge, and I took it, not because it was interesting, it wasn't, but because it was undermining. In other words, it gave me a lot of spare time. And so I used that spare time to support my artificial intelligence research, which I'd run out of other money for at that point. And um, so when I decided that, actually, <coughs> um, there was this tragic um, you know, gap in the, in the community that hardly anybody was working properly on the biology of aging, all I really had to do was repurpose my spare time. So do you find that you approach aging from the perspective of computer science to this day? Well, I wouldn't say that it really has much of an impact on the way I do things this, right now. But early on, absolutely, it made a huge difference. But whether I just approached the problem of aging and how we might do something about it was very much as an engineer, you know, as someone who had, had um, started out in an engineering discipline. And it was very different from the way that career biologists were thinking about it. 
so the big result of that after a few years, after I had been in the field for a few years, was this kind of eureka moment about 20 years ago of realizing that, <clears throat> that what we needed to do to impact aging was to repair damage, to uh, address the various types of molecular and cellular change that happen progressively throughout life and that eventually exceed the, what the body is set up to tolerate. Now, I just want to, I just want to tell our listeners real quick that this is a very different perspective than that of say, Dr. Barzilai, whom we talked to last week is trying to forestall aging. It seems like. Yes and no. Actually, um, Nir and I are a lot closer than it may initially sound. Nice. Nir certainly comes from the, 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 the tradition that existed before I came along and is focused predominantly on trying to essentially make the body run more cleanly and, um, you know, generate damage more slowly. And yes, you're right. Um, that is the thing that I essentially supplanted by coming along and talking about damage repair. However, these days, um, there's not really very much difference in practice. We are definitely focused on preventing the um, amount of damage in the body from rising to the level that causes us to get sick. And if you do that by slow, and of course, doing it by slowing down the rate at which damage is created is in some ways harder, but in some ways easier. It's definitely harder in the sense that. Um, you know, we can't do it very much because the creation of damage is so intrinsically um, integrated into the network of processes that keep us alive. But on the other hand, it is something we can already do to some extent uh, with simple drugs like metformin, which, of course, Neo is famous for. Um, <clears throat> so <coughs> pretty much everybody agrees now that... Um, in the, in the end, what we're going to need is the kind of damage repair that I talk about. But they also acknowledge that, and so do I, that, the, um, that so, at least some of those types of damage are really difficult to repair and we're going to need technology that's still somewhere away. Do you find that the industry model is more effective at accomplishing these sorts of large projects than academic models and so well, should be applied on a larger scale um <clears throat> well um there has always been a pipeline from academia to industry when discoveries within academia generate um you know sufficient translatability that the the product you know, that, that people can visualize, then investors start getting interested. And, you know, that's why Big Pharma talk to academia a lot. Um, so what we've done is kind of put an additional component into there, a kind of middle ground, a bridge between those two that allows things to be uh, pursued in a translational, goal-directed manner, even when they are still so early that they're just not investable, even from the point of view of the really high-risk, high-reward type angel investors. And, you know, what this really does, and it is increasingly doing, is essentially blurring the boundary between those two so that, <clears throat> so that investors can get involved even earlier than ever um, in a manner that nevertheless hedges their risk because they're, you know, they're taking a lot of shots on goal, they're diversifying what technologies they're investing in. Is there a point to the sort of... Let me back up. I've heard many academic researchers, especially the ones that are focused on very basic science, not a technology, not engineers, not applied science. They seem like they suffer because of the fact that there's a pressure to produce some kind of product rather than simply be able to focus on this theoretical, philosophical aspect of science. Understanding nature? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you shouldn't really call it theoretical or philosophical. The better way to describe it is curiosity-driven. The idea of basic science really is that we don't know what discoveries are going to be useful, so we shouldn't try and guess. We should just discover stuff for the sake of discovering stuff, and then you know, every so often we're going to discover stuff that is useful and people can get on and use it. The difficulty is that the mindset involved in being a good curiosity-driven scientist is very different from the mindset that's involved in being a good translational scientist, engineer. 
essentially, it's the way you use data. You just use data differently when you're deciding what questions to ask versus deciding how to use what you already know. And um, so, yeah, certainly when I came into the field and when I started talking this way, for the first several years, it was an uphill battle to get my colleagues in the field to understand what the hell I was talking about, because they were thinking of the biology of aging as a phenomenon, like, you know, earthquakes. You know, it, it was really like that. They, um, you know, gerontologists would, they would understand that the thing they were studying is bad for you, but they would have no aspiration at all to actually doing anything about it. And indeed, you couldn't even talk about translation in a grant application. It was like the, you know, the kiss of death. Now, it's exactly the other way around. You've got to talk about translation. And as you say, <clears throat> um, sometimes this may be a bad thing. It may not be fitting the skill sets of some of the people involved. So really what we need is an acknowledgement that there is this spectrum of skill sets that exists and that we need both. We absolutely need curiosity-driven basic research and we also need early-stage goal-directed research that will eventually translate into something investable. What's this framework for that? It seems like humans are having a hard time being able to figure out how to match both goals. Do you have a sense of what the ideal world would look like? How do you nurture the relationships between both sides? That's true, yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. You see, I think, I think basically it, 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 it's, it's a progression that happens for each field independently. Like in gerontology, the reason why the emphasis now is on translation is because we do know enough that people are actually demonstrating results. Whereas 15, 20 years ago, when I was starting to have these ideas and to talk about these things, People didn't think that way. And certainly the people I needed to persuade back then, the senior gerontologists, were people who had spent their entire careers, decades, in an environment where it did not make any sense to think translationally about aging because we just didn't know enough. Hmm. And really, if you look back at what the situation was in the year 2000 when I had this big eureka moment, most of the um, scientific work on which I based the idea, the actual, you know, em uh, emerging you know um technologies that were that mattered were only a few years old they had all come along in the late 90s almost all of them this idea um, was about damage yeah well that's right yeah so basically in order to make the idea be a coherent idea i had to actually you know enumerate the damage i had to actually say okay there are th there's this relatively manageable number of categories of damage and this is how we could go about repairing each of them and the technologies for repair were things, as I say, that were only a few years old, typically. And very often, moreover, those technologies had been developed outside of gerontology for completely different reasons. So, of course, gerontologists didn't know about them at all. And so there was a lot of like education needing to be done. So this is a really interesting question because it seems like this sort of cross-disciplinary thinking or the ability to think outside of the contours of a specific field is really important for the next phase of human development. Each field has been pushed to a degree that it's quite developed. The ideas are fully fleshed out in many ways. And the thing that's missing is the ability to connect the dots between very different aspects. I wouldn't quite put it that way. I think the um, the individual fields also have dots that remain to be joined. It's just that sometimes the joining of those dots within a field arises from um, the field being looked at by people from another field. Um, so kind of the, the fields join each other's dots. In addition to what you're saying, the actual outcome of joining the two fields together or the multiple fields together. How do you nurture that sort of connection, though? Because I guess I have, yeah. I mean, really, you know, coming at this in this way and bringing these many fields together, uh, I've tried to engage, uh, to maximize the extent to which um, specialists in different areas can educate each other and to make them see the, the, the value. And the thing is, this wasn't difficult to motivate because scientists in general do know everything I'm saying. They just live with it because it's the only way they can get funded. Um, so, for example, when I started running conferences back in, uh, let me say, 2003, 
the conferences were completely unique in the sense of the range of topics, the range of areas of expertise that I would bring together. And I would regularly have a case where I would invite such and such a scientist and they would write back and say, um, are you sure? You know, I don't work on aging. Um, you know, and I would have to explain to them why I was inviting them. Uh, uh, but the actual, the actual events, the actual conferences were, you know, a complete hit because all of the scientists there were learning stuff. That there, was, there wouldn't typically be a single scientist in the room who knew more than a quarter of the work that was being presented, which is completely unlike typical conferences. Um, so, yeah, it worked extremely well. And, um, of course, the, 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 the question then is how to take it the next step, how to actually bring enough money in so that people can not only go to the occasional conference and enjoy themselves for a few days, but actually go back to their labs and get on and do stuff that they've learned about. So that's, of course, why we set up the foundation and why we've been, we've been constantly trying to get more um, funding sources to, to get involved in this. There is recognition of this within government as well. It's just not, again, it's been very hard to act upon. So there are initiatives that try to um, encourage more cross-disciplinary work, uh, but really the amount of money that goes into those things is very, very slight. I wanted to ask you about the conferences because it seems like conferences for human scientists are an incredibly important piece of the discipline. But the world that you live in seems like it's going through a pretty significant transformation in terms of in-person gatherings. Yes, it certainly is. Um, so at the moment, I think nobody really knows whether it's going to work. Certainly, the positive is that people have got better at doing communication online than they were. You know, uh, teleconferences do work better than they used to simply because people have more experience of how to make them work. But you're completely right that there are certain things that simply cannot be replaced by that. So much of the value of a typical conference arises from the unplanned networking and you know interactions that you just could not have anticipated in advance. And so we, for example, we still run a conference every year. Uh, this year it was supposed to be in May and then it was postponed to October. A lot of people, in fact, most, uh, most people who run conference series have decided that they'll just do them online. And I still do a lot of public speaking at meetings like that from my bedroom. But we decided not to do that. We decided that we would actually sit it out and carry on postponing for as long as necessary. So the current date for the conference is 12 months after the original date, in other words, next May. And, um, you know, we, we will get it going again. I think, you know, this is generally how things are going to go. That as, of course, as the pandemic does get more under control, if vaccines come out and get widely distributed and so on, there will be a lot of pressure to restore the at least moderate degree of social interaction that uh, is necessary for these for this to be restored if you had to start everything that you've built today in the yeah. conditions of today how would it be different so for someone who has some kind of box breaking idea and they're looking at the world right now and they're seeing all of these limitations. They're seeing all of these destructive forces at play. How would your own approach be different if you were limited by today? That's a hard question to answer because the um, main thing that would be different if I was starting today is I would be starting from a completely different base of what science has been done. So perhaps I can turn the question around a bit and say, what would I have done 15 years ago if there had been a pandemic back then? Yes, exactly. In other words, if in addition to the science being so much less far advanced, we'd also had problems of social distancing and so on. Exactly. And honestly, I'm not sure. I mean, um, so much of what happened back then was a result of me, you know, being seen at one conference and being invited to the next conference. You know, last year, the year before, I would do maybe 50 talks a year, okay? No. Uh, back then, 15 years ago, it was like two talks a year, but, they, but every talk, you know, led to the next one. And so, you know, I went from being a complete unknown to being at 
Ted in like 18 months. Um, but that only happened because I was there, you know, and, and, you know, I would not have met, for example, Chris Anderson, the guy who runs Ted, if he had not physically decided to come to a conference in Camden, Maine, about two years previously, you know, so, <coughs> so honestly, you know, it relied so much on serendipity and luck when I was doing it without the social distancing, that I guess it would rely even more on that if there had been um, these problems and things would have gone more slowly. Of course, what we're seeing right now is a lot of understanding that, um, that medical research and indeed medical progress in general is being slowed down very broadly across the board by the, um, by, by the focus that is, ne is needed on the pandemic right now. And the only real silver lining of all of this is the thinking that because the, um, the, the, the virus so preferentially affects the elderly, that there will now be a greater emphasis on translational gerontology, on the development of ways to keep the elderly more useful and therefore more resistant to any future pandemics. So I wanted to ask you what you think about the role of private medicine, the privatization of medicine, there seem to be a lot of people right now who are, to say the least, doubtful and sort of skeptical of the role of big industry getting involved in their healthcare, at least in this country. Uh, this country in space? This country we're studying right now. Yes. What's it called? The United States, I guess? <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Um, so... You know, I think this may be a little bit overblown, to be honest. The um, you know, the details, the you know, the, the the nimbleness with which a system can react to changing circumstances is definitely a function of um, whether you know, of how the structure, what structure exists, uh, and the extent to which you know it relies on insurance or um, you know a single payer and so on. Um, but the fundamentals don't really rely on that because at the end of the day, you know, whether a system is private or public or predominantly one or the other, still everybody has to pay the bills somehow. So somehow or other, the, the regulations and so on are put in place so that stuff happens, products get generated, products get distributed, people pay for them, people make money from having developed them. Um, and... I think in this new sector, the sector of uh, medicine that really works against aging, that is still going to be true. The only big difference is going to be the magnitude of the driving force, namely the um, public um, appetite for this. Because at the moment, we have, of course, a situation in which medicine for the elderly, even the really high-tech expensive medicine for the elderly, basically doesn't work. And therefore all that the public are being asked to pay for is a small amount of low-quality additional life, whereas medicine for aging that actually does work will present a very different scenario in which people will be asked to pay for stuff that actually gives them a very large amount of high-quality life. And that is going to be a much easier sell, which means that it's going to be much easier to, um, well, essentially to distribute that um, that money across the industry. I see. So you feel like this is just a matter of progress, like you're just not able to demonstrate the product fully yet. And so... I do, I do yes. And, I, and more than that, actually, I think a lot of it will come down to anticipation. So, you know, the reason I'm constantly on stage and on camera is not because there's progress, but because there is this desperation that people have to actually see the end of aging, and so they just want to keep up. They want to, they want to be up to date about um, where things are at. And there will come a time when most of my expert colleagues, the people who these days have to worry about being accused of being irresponsible, um, you know, are going to be able and willing to say on camera the kind of things that I've always said to the effect that aging is a medical problem that we are within striking distance of solving. Once that happens, of course, first of all, the amount of enthusiasm for spending taxpayers' money on hastening the defeat of aging is going to skyrocket. But also, 
people are going to start thinking what their lives are going to be like in the future. They're going to start changing their spending habits because they have a different expectation of how long they're going to live. You know, they're going to want different pension plans, different health insurance, different life insurance, different inheritance arrangements. It's going to be an extreme dislocation for the global economy. And that's kind of a good thing because all of this is going to happen before the therapies actually arrive which means that it's all going to shake down by the time they do arrive. And the um, process of getting these medicines out there in a manner that is not restricted by ability to pay is going to have all been worked out. So before we move on to the question of what a human world without aging will look like, I want to ask one more question that ties back a little bit to this idea of what you said about the fact that most of the aging treatments today aren't particularly effective. There seems to be a tremendous amount of anti-science and anti-institutional perspectives on Earth today. Do you think that that has something to do with the fact that many of these strategies aren't particularly effective? No. I think that there is... Uh, the same understanding that there's always been that aging is really hard to do anything about. And certainly people are very irrational about aging. The way they cope with it and put it out of their minds is by pretending that it's some kind of blessing in disguise, you know, inventing potential problems that might be might exist in a post-aging world and overblowing them. Or for that matter, pretending that aging is not a medical problem at all, but rather that it's woven into the fabric of the universe in some you know, intrinsic way that means that it's simply off limits to medicine. Um, that's irrational, sure. Both of those things are completely crazy, but they're not new. They're what we've always done. In fact, you know, argue people. some people might say that the whole of religion is part of that kind of thing. Um, but what is new, well, not exactly new, but is at least more prominent now than it was maybe 10 or 20 years ago, is a general, you know, um, uh, undercurrent of, of skepticism about science in general. Um, but that is kind of transient, I think. Hmm. It's kind of, you know, there are people that occasionally you have world leaders who just you know, find it expedient to appeal to people who haven't got much education. And so a lot of noise gets made, but it doesn't actually really change the fundamentals very much. And, you know, it goes away. It's interesting because you spent so much of your time at the beginning trying to convince a field of something that they couldn't see. And I can imagine that if your background had been different, if you didn't have access to Cambridge, if you didn't have a PhD, and you were simply looking at the field from the outside and were attempting to criticize it or to point out a blind spot, that you wouldn't have been welcomed? That's not really true, actually. Hmm. Um, huh. So when I started out, first of all, I didn't even have a PhD at the time, but um, more to the point, I definitely didn't have any training in how to do experiments. And as I mentioned earlier, that was a real um, <clears throat> handicap for biologists back then because the concept of theoretical biology was almost derogatory, right? Are you trained um, in experiments now? No, 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 I never wanted to do that. There's plenty of people who are perfectly good at doing those. Um, uh, and that was, why, that was precisely why I didn't go to the trouble of getting experimental training, is because it, that skill was not in short supply. The skill that was in short supply was thinking. Um, so, <coughs> yeah, so, <coughs> so I came along and, um, you know, started coming to conferences and getting known and, and so on. And I actually garnered a great deal of respect very quickly. And it wasn't because I had an affiliation with the University of Cambridge. And it was despite the fact that I didn't know how to do experiments. The only thing that mattered was that I would ask really awkward questions at the end of talks. And people would see that I was smart and knowledgeable and um, you know, generally, generally worth talking to. And so, yes, I published a few papers before I became a troublemaker and started talking about damage repair. And those papers were quite well received because they, you know, they had ideas in them that people thought they should have had themselves, you, um, and that did, that did help. You published them from an academic affiliation. 
Uh, well, right, the academic affiliation, yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I, I know, the University of Cambridge was on the papers, but the point is the people who mattered were the people who knew me personally and didn't care whether I was at Cambridge. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that was actually pretty straightforward to get respected that way. Now, when I started talking about damage repair, a lot of people, as I say, didn't understand anything I was saying at first. And uh, some of those people decided that I was being unscientific and also because I was making quite dramatic predictions about the impact on longevity, which was a very big political hot potato back then, um, you know, people thought I was bringing the field into disrepute. And at that point, people started using things against me that they would never have dreamt of using against me before. The fact that I didn't have a PhD yet, that I got it around that time, actually. Um, the fact that I um, didn't know how to do experiments, certainly. Um, and therefore, you know, I was accused of thinking that experiments were easy. Um, things like that. Um, uh, and that went on for quite some time, but the point is it did not matter at the beginning. At the beginning, everyone was very collegial um, and they didn't need to know. And, and there are other examples of people who came into the field around that time who were not affiliated with Cambridge and who also became respected in that way. They didn't have such an impact as I've had in the long run because they didn't have the damage repair idea. But still, you know, again, they were perfectly well respected and and they didn't hold them back. One last question in this direction before we move on to the consequences of an ageless society. It, do you think that having an institutional certificate, like a PhD, is necessary for someone who is interested in changing something that's outside the box? Not absolutely necessary, but... The thing is that, as I mentioned, the people who mattered to me 20-odd years ago were people I was meeting personally, and to them, what mattered was what I was saying, not what letters were after my name. However, in the long run, if you want to make a big difference, you've got to have a community behind you, and that consists of people you haven't met as well, people who will actually simply make judgments as to whether you're likely to be um, you know, saying anything useful, based on superficial evidence, which of course does include what letters are after your name. So absolutely, I'm quite sure that having a PhD has enormously helped me, and indeed having been associated with the University of Cambridge has enormously helped me, even though the work I did there was nothing to do with the biology of aging. Um, so, you know, this is just, you know, not, not specific to the biology of aging, obviously not. It's true in any field that people make judgments based on superficial um, over simplistic measures, and so you've got to get those things right in one way or another in order to get listened to. So it's all about making friends. Politics. I keep I'm hearing about so. politics. I'm afraid so. Well, science is a team sport, I guess. It makes sense. Even on our yeah. planet. So let's take a look at the deep future. What does a world without aging look like? Well, you tell me. Presumably yours is. Well, it was tough for our species. Back on Alvaflos, a lot of folks, well, people choose when to die on our planet. I'm only right, right. So the way I always look at it is that the tough part is going to be the transition into a post-aging world. But the post-aging world itself is not going to be a problem at all. Um, is that what you found? We found that many, if not most, decided that they didn't want to live for very much longer. There was even, a very... though, even though they were youthful and, and not going downhill in terms of mental or physical function. They grew bored. They found the pleasures of life to be frivolous. They found they didn't have a larger central meaning. Work was exhausting. There was... There was nothing that drove them forward. And so, faced with the opportunity to continue this sort of existence for hundreds, if not thousands of years, many of them just decided not to. It wasn't worth it. Right. Well, that's depressing, um, <clears throat> because it seems to me that it's very unlikely that most civilizations should not have that re reaction. And the reason I say that is because... It sounds like your main difficulty was the shortage of novelty. 
of you know new stuff to do uh, and so on. And I can't see how that would happen. Purpose. It was more meaning Purpose rather than meaning, novelty. Novelty became frivolous. And certainly, uh, this didn't apply to everyone. So I'm almost, I guess, 500,000 Earth years old. I've been working at this science thing for a while all over the galaxy. But that's kind of unique. I see. Um, yeah, I mean, so I guess some people think in, you know, they tell, they, 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 they worry a lot about the meaning of life. But most people don't. Most people just have, you know, relatively near-term considerations about, um, you know, what their priorities are and what drives them. You know, these days, um, people, when, when people ask me, you know, uh, uh, won't we just uh, be, won't we, won't we just have no urgency? You know, won't we just, um, you know, stay in bed all day because there's nothing to, because we can't be bothered, we could do it, always do it tomorrow. I say, well, look, take yourself back to the first time you had sex and ask yourself, um, what were you thinking immediately beforehand? In particular, were you thinking, um, oh my God, oh my God, I have to get this person into bed right now because I've only got another 60 years to live? Probably not, right? You know, there are nearer-term motivations based on, you know, self-esteem and peer pressure and stuff like that. And I don't see that changing. It seems to me that having another 60 years to live or having another 60 million years to live are the same in that situation. So I'm having a hard time understanding how this lack of meaning, whatever that's supposed to mean, actually translates into lack of, enjoyment of life and uh, lack of um, desire to wake up tomorrow. I think that it was that the pleasures of life for many ceased to be as pleasurable. Sex for the first time is different than sex for the hundred thousandth time. Into a perception of lack of meaning or boredom is that technology is continuing to advance. And so new experiences are becoming available all the time that have genuinely never been available before. And that, as a source of novelty, seems to be pretty much inexhaustible. We Spatial exploration is also expanding. So your species is starting to make its way into the solar system. And that's one thing that really helped our species out a lot was that as we began to live longer, we could move out and continue to develop new regions. How do you imagine that working out for your species? Have you been certainly... paying attention to the space exploration programs? Sure, sure. And I certainly think this is worth doing. A lot of the um, most innovative work in space exploration right now is driven by the concept of what we call existential risk. In other words, the risk that some event would happen that would wipe out the entire human race in one go. Um, the idea is that you know most of those events are things that would be uh, the result of uh, something terrestrial, and therefore, if we had some small subset of the human race that was not on Earth, then the human race itself would continue. Like a backup hard drive. That's right. Now, of course, the, um, the, the this kind of begs the question of whether um, the human race itself has some value. In other words, whether the survival of anybody is important uh, or whether in fact almost everybody dying is actually almost as bad as absolutely everybody dying um so you know this is just a you know a philosophical question that people agree to disagree on uh but certainly that's one of the main drivers right now is get is, is having um off-site um backups as you say um beyond that you know some people say stupid things like this would be the way to solve the problem of overpopulation that would arise from no longer having um, uh, having aging. That's complete nonsense for straightforward mathematical reasons. We just you know not, you can't get to enough space in enough time. Um, but uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, but but the, the, that's not the main driver. Most people don't think in terms of mass exodus into space. They just think in terms of as you say exploration. Are you worried about that overpopulation question? You probably get that definitely. a lot. Sure do. Yeah, definitely not. So first of all, of course, we have to take into account the fact that 
um, fertility rates plummet whenever any society gets to a certain level of female emancipation and education, and um, you know they just seem to think that they're. Um, there are better things to do than having just lots of kids or indeed having any kids early. Um, so the average age at which women have, the few kids they do have, tends to rise. And once we don't have aging, and therefore we also don't have menopause, and it's possible to have kids whenever you'd like, the tendency to postpone having your first kid will, um, uh, it will obviously have a great deal more um, freedom, and therefore we could easily see fertility rates actually coming down as a result of longer lifespans. Um, however, still, if nobody's dying, and of course we would expect that there would still be um, death from causes that don't have to do with how long you were born, but we shouldn't um, set too much store by that because that risk of death will also be going down over time, you know, as we invent, for example, self-driving cars that are safer than regular cars and so on. Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, if we presume basically no death as, a, as an approximation, then clearly population is going to go up. The question then is, to what extent can population go up without a problem? And that is determined not by the number of people that exist, but rather by the amount of pollution that those people cause. So today, for example, we have climate change happening. We have the, you know, an increase in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is causing temperatures to rise and lots of bad effects. Um, but that's fundamentally because we're still burning a lot of coal and oil to, <coughs> to make energy. Um, and that's changing already. We are seeing that technology has allowed energy from the wind and from the sun to be generated at a price that's very comparable to the price of energy from fossil fuel. And so, and that's gonna carry on happening. So we are going to see a dramatic fall in that type of pollution very soon. We're also gonna see dramatic falls in pollution from plenty of other sources. For example, artificial meat, that's gonna be quite soon, both tastier and cheaper than regular meat and therefore saving the greenhouse gases that are generated by agriculture. Things like um, bacteria that can degrade plastics that are currently accumulating in the oceans and so on. Um, so all, all this adds up to is that we will be increasing the carrying capacity of the planet. We will be increasing the number of people that can exist on the Earth without significant or at least problematic um, environmental impact. And, I like uh, that. And whatever assumptions you make about how fast that, uh, how fast these technologies are going to come along, even really, really pessimistic assumptions, it's very hard to come to the conclusion that the population could possibly rise as a result of the elimination of aging faster than the carrying capacity of the planet would, would rise. Now, of course, we can imagine that in the very distant future, thousands of years into the future, that we would have so many people that we genuinely did have a problem with having enough space rather than simply having enough um, having too much pollution. And, um, you know, that's possible. But I figure we can worry about that later. Uh, we've got a whole lot, whole lot of suffering to eliminate in the meantime uh, that aging causes, and that's the first priority. And you might have spread out into the system a bit more by then, perhaps. Right. You know, it's also interesting. I really like your optimism. I appreciate that. Uh, we were talking to this space miner, a guy who runs a corporation on Earth aimed at mining asteroids and mining the moon and developing space infrastructure. He and too was very optimistic. He was also very optimistic. And one thing he points out is that actually moving industry into space, so to the moon, for instance, could deal with a lot of these pollution issues by externalizing the environmental damage into the vacuum of space and keeping Earth as a sort of life raft for you guys. Well, well sure, yeah. I mean, this is really, as far as I'm concerned, one facet of the rise of automation. In general, it's pretty straightforward to make robots that can withstand environments that humans cannot withstand because they're too polluted or too hot or whatever. And the more we get, um, the more progress we make in developing artificial intelligence and autonomousness, uh, autonomy of robots and um, machines in general, 
the more we will be able to, to, to free up humans, not only from having to spend so much of their time doing stuff that they would not do unless they were being paid for it, but also um, to, uh, yeah, to, 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 to preserve their environment. So I want to go back to something you mentioned a little earlier. Because this idea of, you just mentioned of something that humans are being paid for. One of the things that is very difficult for humans to do right now is to work for their entire lives. Because oftentimes the jobs that they do don't pay very well, they're very exhausting, they're very tiring. And it seems like there isn't really a system that is made to support a large population of people that aren't working. That aren't working. That aren't working, exactly. So Yeah, kind of. So I'm not really sure that that's an accurate way of saying it. All right. The question is <clears throat> not what... The question that matters to people is not really whether they are being paid for the thing that they spend most of their time doing. What matters to them is, to, is the two components of that separately from each other. Number one, they need to have enough money to get what they need to, in, to have a high-quality life. Yep. And number two, they need to have they need to be spending their time doing things that are fulfilling. Yep. The fulfillment does not have to come from the paycheck. Yep. So if we are looking for a solution to this, then the solution is going to involve addressing the two components separately, ensuring that wealth is equitably distributed and of course automation does increase wealth because you don't have to pay machines and machines don't consume resources um, in the same way um, so that that's one side and then the other side is finding ways to ensure that uh, people have the skills to do something fulfilling with their time so whether that is directly things that machines can't do like you know um interpersonal jobs like nursing and so on, or whether it's um, skills like uh, composing music or you know playing sports or whatever that are for the entertainment of others as, as well as for one's own self-esteem in terms of one's skills. Um, you know, all of these things, I mean, there's only so much that you could expect people to pay for those things if, if that's the way of doing it. But that's not the way we should be looking at it, because money is not money is not the same as wealth. Money is simply a way of exchanging wealth. Sure, but it seems like a huge problem on Earth, particularly in this country we're studying, the United States, is that the wealth has a tendency to clump together in a small portion of the population. Yes, I agree. Um, and of course... <clears throat> the extent to which it does so is a decision made by society. Huh. So different societies have different levels of taxation, different you know, gradients of taxation, um, depending on what the government does, and the government is elected. So some societies are simply more egalitarian. They think that equality matters more. And some societies think that opportunity matters more and that you should allow people to um, you know, to get wealthy, and therefore taxation should not be so, what they would call, regressive. Um, and there's so, also um, the side of things where, what do you do with the money once you tax it? So distribution of those funds, right? It's like two... Well, well, well kind of. I mean, the point about distribution, of course, is that it does go to increasing the quality of life in one way or another of the population in general. So, um, yes, exactly how you do that, but but the first step is actually having enough tax tax to use in the first place. Hmm. I'm curious about this idea that let's say wealth is redistributed and so the question of working constantly is less pressing. And the question of fulfillment on the other hand becomes much more pressing. It becomes the dominant paradigm in which people are living. Does fulfillment become more difficult with chronological age? The longer that you live, is it harder to become fulfilled? Well, so this comes back to the thing that you were asking earlier, really. I can't see why it would, 
because I believe that what dominates people's thinking, people's consciousness, including, of course, people's perception of their level of satisfaction with their life, is relatively near-term stuff that does not have to do with what, what date is on one's birth certificate. Um, so, you know, it may Are be there the psychological re- changes that come with aging that have nothing to do with the physical ones, I suppose is what I'm asking? Yeah, so that is a question that we can't answer until we see, but mm. the, um, the, the prediction, the quite strong prediction based on what we know about how the brain works is that, no, there will be no differences because the way the brain works is by maintaining um, things that matter. So, for example, memory. Um, by, by, the, by middle age, humans today are definitely forgetting things and learning new things at roughly the same rate. The, amount, the total amount of stuff that's in their brain isn't really changing. Um, and that's okay because the process of recalling a memory reinforces that memory which means that the things you forget are things that not only did you learn a long time ago, but also they don't matter to you, which is why they have not been recalled. But it right? also changes the memory, right? So can you imagine a situation where the no, recalling well, of old memories just starts to warp things? Well, I mean, the thing is, it's not a component of old memories. What you have is simply a long tail in terms of, if you, if you, if you kind of, um, if, you, if you put a graph of how much memory is how much of your memory was stuff that you learned a year ago, how much was two years ago, and so on. It's just a kind of exponential decay. And all that changes is the is how much you stretch the x-axis on that. Um, so really, it doesn't change things. Well, I have one last question for you, Dr. DeGray. Uh, what are you working on right now? What is the most pressing, important topic in, in your life? in science. What, yeah, what's your favorite I'm, project right now? I'm still spreading myself far too thin. Um, basically, what's happened over the past 15 years is that all of the areas of damage repair that I believe need to be pursued have been pursued with success. They have all moved forward, but they all have some way to go. Um, and uh, the good news is that we don't have any new ones. We haven't made any you know, unfortunate discoveries of new types of damage that we didn't know about before or new reasons why our approaches to fixing damage are not going to work, anything like that. Mm-hmm. All the surprises that have happened have been good surprises, new shortcuts. Um, is that perhaps uh, yes, possibly due to the lack of basic research? Or? Oh, no, no, not at all. No, as I said, we have made plenty of progress. It's just that the progress has not thrown up any bad news. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so basically what I do now is, uh, since there are lots of good scientists really committed to working on this, I don't have to, I, I can delegate most of that. And so my work has, over the years, um, shifted more and more towards being dominated by outreach, by um, communicating with the general public, by getting new people involved, especially these days, new investors. Um, you know, so, yeah, I just do a lot of networking. If somebody wants to fight against aging, someone who isn't a scientist, someone who wants to find out what is the most promising thing, what do you recommend? Well, of course, non-scientists can become scientists. I did. Um, but, or at least non-biologists can become biologists. But um, beyond that, masses. I mean, basically, everyone's skills, whatever they may be, can be applied to this. So, for example, if you're wealthy, however, you, irrespective of how you got wealthy, you can help just by financially supporting this work. If you are in the media, you can do what you're doing right now. You can interview me. You know, you can get, you can generally spread the word by allowing experts in the field to communicate directly the um, you know, where things are and why we are so much more optimistic than we used to be. Um, if you are in politics or in any other kind of advocacy work, then, of course, you can apply that. You can lobby things. You know, everyone can do that, really. What I always say to people who say, oh, I can't write you a big check because I'm not very rich, I always say, the poorer you are, the more people you know who are wealthier than you. So mm-hmm. you can allow it to trickle up, um, so to speak. And, yeah, everyone can do that. Talk to their colleagues, their friends, their family. A lot of it even revolves simply around dampening down the opposition. So I mentioned that there is this huge um, 
um, amount of irrationality about aging in the general public that it, that is built up as a kind of psychological crutch to stop people thinking about it. But it's an enormous part of the problem now, and what it means is that there are people who vigorously oppose this work or think it's think it's think it's unscientific or whatever, and they sometimes hold things back. For example, I definitely know multiple very wealthy people who very much believe in what we're doing and would very much be supporting us financially, but they don't because their wives don't want them to. So a lot of what I do involves getting getting the the opposition to be less vocal rather than getting the, um, the, 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 rather than preaching to the choir. So what if you are interested in purchasing something or doing something that prevents aging? What's the most promising thing that people can go to right now? So there really isn't anything that one can do right now. Of course, there are supplements and, and lifestyle interventions and so on that people talk about a lot. But most people can only get a very modest amount of benefit, if anything, from that kind of approach. Of course, there is always a minority of people who will benefit, people who have, whatever, for whatever reason, drawn some kind of genetic short straw and who uh, might be able to have their aging somewhat normalized by relatively simple means of the sort that's available today. Uh, but at the end of the day, in order to um, have significant benefit for most people, we just need therapies that don't yet exist. And that means that the best thing that one can do is to write me a large check or get somebody else to do so. Ah, Excellent. I'll take one too. Okay. Joking. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. DeGray. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. Take care. Bye. Bye.